Welcome to the Boston Ed Talks podcast series, where we dive a little deeper into this year's Boston Ed Talks. The Boston Ed Talks are an annual celebration of Greater Boston's innovative teachers and teaching. We're going to learn a little bit more about these teachers, what makes them special, what makes their teaching special, and how you can apply what they've learned to your classrooms. I'm your host, Ethan Bronner. Today we're talking with Francis Pina, a math teacher at Charlestown High School. Francis has focused on the importance of being authentic in the classroom as a teacher and also on the building of community among his students. He learned from personal experience that without a community, it's very hard to succeed academically. So Francis Pina, uh, you're about to start your year at Charlestown High School as a teacher of math. Mm -hmm. I want to welcome you to the podcast, and I want to ask you a little bit about yourself to begin with. Uh, You... uh, you had an unusual Boston Ed Talks in 2017 <laughs> in the sense that yours was more of a prose poem uh, rather than a, a lecture. Mm. It was very gripping. Um, and in it, you made reference uh, poetically, but nonetheless clearly, <laughs> to the fact that you had been a good student in high school and then got to college and it did not go well. Uh, tell us about that. Yes. Um, I want to start by saying it's great to be here, so thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I had a really tough first semester um, of my undergraduate career. Um, I got accepted. I was at Boston University, and I was coming from the John D. Bryant School of Mathematics and Science, wow. um, and I was starting in engineering because wow. that's, that's what I want to do. You know, I, I was a part of other programs that talked about getting minorities or underrepresented, like, people into the STEMs. Mm -hmm. So by being a part of that program, I was like, yeah, engineers, what I want to do. I want to be a mechanical engineer. I want to invent things and come up with things. Um, So coming from that school, I had a lot of confidence. I mean, it's one of the exam schools. It's it's a school of mathematics and science. The STEMs are what it's like buttresses. And when I entered BU, I just didn't realize how, how big of a culture shift it was going to be to go from you know, I had a lot of peers and friends in high school that I knew very well. And since I was there since seventh grade, because the exam schools, you can enter in seventh grade or in ninth grade, um, I, I had a posse with me. I had a group of friends. I had people I knew very well and teachers that I've seen for over like five to six years. And when I entered BU, vastly bigger school, um, I didn't have as much of those strong connections as I had when I was at O'Brien. Um when I was entering, it was just, I had classes that were just so massive. I remember having a chemistry class that, like, on the first day, it seems like the first day in the final exam are when you really know who's in your class. <laughs> so you'll start with, like, oh, there's, like, 600 people here. And then come the final exam, you're like, oh, there's, like, 550 people here. But during classes, 200, 230, 250. Um, so I just, that's just something I wasn't used to, and I wasn't really prepared for that. And I also wasn't prepared for the rigor yes. that was that was college, which is a little surprising because you came from a rigorous school. Yeah, and there was there was some support that was given to me, like being in small classes and right. at O'Brien. So when I entered um, BU, it was tough to not have that that support that I had, like while I was at O'Brien, and to also to feel like. I'm failing. Like I wasn't doing well, and I didn't know how to cope with that. 
I was always a student that did well academically. So not to do well, especially in STEMs, which is yes. I'm coming from a STEM school, it really hurt my my ego, of definitely, course. and my psyche. And how did you get out of it? Um, it it would be through some close friends and my mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, is the person and my mentor, um, Denise Mooney, who still works over at BU and still is my mentor today. Um, it was you know just a chance meeting of meeting her in an elevator over the summer, going through summer orientation, and I was lost. And she like gave me directions and open and like said, hey. Like, reach out to me when you're on campus. We can talk. Um, so I remember, like, just being at some of my lowest points and just going to speak to her. And you know, not only did she, like, boost me up, but, you know, she gave me some practical things to, to do moving forward. It's and, so interesting to think mm-hmm. that, you know, partly what we're really talking about is uh, an emotional need, right, to be held, to know that there are people who care about you. It's not about your inability to do the academics. And what does that tell us about how we have to help students who are, you know, less skilled than you. Mm. Yeah, and for me, it, it told me a lot. And I think uh, another part of that is, you know, from coming from O'Brien, which is one of the most culturally, ethnically, and racially diverse schools in the city of Boston, going to BU, where <laughs> there was a common joke within the black community at BU that there's more Starbucks on campus than black students. Um <laughs> And what is humor to that? It, it was true. It's a very yes. small um, black community. And and if you don't plug into that early enough to really, like, get connected with those resources, you're, you're going to miss some of that support that can come from, like, interacting with folks that may have had the same, like, experience as you coming into college. But it's just so interesting that that it's hard to do well. That's something you're able to do mm-hmm. without that communal and emotional support. It's an important lesson if that's the case. Yeah, it was a huge important lesson. I remember like t- the two classes that I failed, they were like the first Fs I ever got in my academic mm-hmm. career, mm-hmm. Um, was in calculus and chemistry. And I'm like, wow, these are directly my STEMs. <laughs> and in my engineering course that I had to take and my English and, and writing courses, I did well but to not do well in those courses and i wasn't able to form a strong community around myself like a study group Mm -hmm. or something like that um it was it was painful it was it was tough and i was thinking maybe this isn't for me i wasn't prepared with with those type of skills that are necessary to to plug into these to those networks to form those study groups because you know academics were kind of easy for me um, so I haven't been, I wasn't in a position where I ever been challenged like I was at BU. And I just was like, ah. So by having those connections with like Denise Mooney um, and some other friends to kind of like lift me up and to for me to push forward and really get through that um, was necessary. It's what I needed. So you went on and you went into Harvard, uh, finished at BU and went to Harvard, right? Yeah, so I ended up, so I switched my major. Um, so I graduated with a Bachelor's of Science in Economics from BU. And then I, in looking for some jobs, I mean, I graduated in 2009. The economy was really tough. Yes, and I was graduating moment. as an economist. So I could talk about like, oh, here's the reason why I'm not getting a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what, should I be able to get a job? I could talk about the reasons why. <laughs> um, so I spent 
so I was in the workforce for three years. I was working, my first year I was working at um, City on the Hill. I was in the Coa Corps program. So I was a full-time tutor, um, like working directly with students. And that's kind of like when I started getting the connection, like, hmm, maybe this teach thing can work for me. And, and since that's a year-long program, um, you have the opportunity to like stay on another year if you want to and be like a lead tutor. Um, but I was looking for other job opportunities and I ended up getting a job at Year Up, um, where I was a, a tutor there and also a teaching assistant. Um, and I and I loved working there. Mm. And it was through that experience of of working with these young adults, um, some of them my age, and a lot of them were like, "Wow, like I know you're teaching us." And I was teaching a class on customer service and helping out with business, like financial, like classes. Like to helping them out with not only like how do you write emails with business communication, but also just like the finances behind that, like savings accounts, bonds and just other things that go with like how do you financially live as an adult or as a young adult? And that was something that I was still learning myself, but I had it somewhat together. And through that and having opportunities to like use some of the educational stipends that they were offering employees to take classes. So I was taking them at the continue edu- at the extension school at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And that was boosting my confidence. I took a, a graduate course in human development. The teachers like loved me. <laughs> um, and I did very well in that course. And I retook a calculus course um, for graduate credit. And that was helpful to like kind of boost my confidence. Like, yeah, I, I got this math. Um, and I thought about, you know, I, I think I want to go back to school for teaching. So I, I applied for many programs. BTR, BU, BC, um, and, and Harvard. And I I didn't think I would get into Harvard Graduate School of Education. Like, what? Who who comes from Boston and gets into Harvard? Like, what? I, I didn't know anyone who had done that. And when they accepted me, I was like, oh, whoa, okay. Um, yes, <laughs> it's Harvard. It's hard to say no. Um, and I needed, before they take this away from me, because I didn't feel like I had, there was still a part of me that was like this imposter syndrome of even being on campus. Like, God, did I really earn this? Like, yeah, that's a good. Was this a mistake? I'm sure. Yeah. So, so you ended up becoming a teacher and mm-hmm. um, and a math teacher. Yes. But what's interesting? So, a, I'm very interested in asking you about this. What you learn? What you having learned about yourself and having mm-hmm. nearly failed, and you know you're smart. And yet you nearly failed, or you did fail a couple of classes, which was, a, I, I know, a, a very upsetting experience. What has it helped you bring to your classroom? Uh, I think, actually, I don't think, I, I know it helps me bring some authenticity. Um, when I talk with my students or if I ever have an opportunity to talk about my college experience or if there's like a college day, like you know, where I was for formerly working at Cobman Academy, we'll have um, college days on Fridays, probably like once a trimester. And you know, those would be times where I could like talk about my experience and be honest with the students. Like, oh, here was my GPA. Here's, you know, here's my student loan debt. Um, here's how I got out of like the struggles that I had in my first year. And that, you know, it's not unique. Even some of the most prepared students, they struggle. And, and some of the most underprepared students, flourish so so here was i was just trying to give him some soft skills and when i think about what does that 
do for me in the classroom. It lets me know that for my students that are killing it in my classroom, um, they can they may still struggle in making yes. that transition. So whether the skills should I be communicating to them or supporting in and out of the classroom um, so that way they are developing not only the confidence that I can handle that, but also having this, the skills and the tools to be able to form networks of support. So talk more about that, Francis, because I think that really is mm-hmm. important. I mean, I think that uh, that's exactly right. What what are you helping them learn so that you see a kid who reminds you of yourself, a good student, mm-hmm. and you understand that that doesn't mean it's going to go great when they get out there, and it could really be quite a problem. If so, what are you what are you bringing to them and helping them think about that uh, would have been good if you'd known? Yeah, for me, it is definitely work, and I do a lot of group work. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what I want to do as a math teacher is make sure that the majority of my practice is student-centered, that students are, I'm like a facilitator, that students are really not only discovering the math and, and understanding why we are using this tool or needing to use this function or what this function really represents and how to apply it in some real-life situations. Um, I I I want them to be the ones that not only can grapple with it, but feel success when they like get something correct and they understand why. So by using student-centered practices and pushing it on them to work in groups and maybe struggle a little bit, they are hopefully developing the type of skills that, one, they have more confidence that I'll at least give it a shot. I'm not going to sit there and not do anything. So break it down a little mm-hmm. more for me. What does it mean, the student-centered and the group? What is it? What happens exactly? Yeah, so like an example of of something that would be like a student-centered practice um, would be like if I put like a hard problem on the board that that may be a little bit out of reach for some students because it may be a topic that I haven't taught them yet, but maybe they have been exposed to the foundational like concepts, so like piecewise functions, and they could probably graph some linear equations, and maybe we have reviewed how to identify domain and ranges of a function, but I haven't introduced like a piece of a function. That would be a piecewise function. So maybe I'll give them like, here's a linear equation, here's a specific domain restriction, graph it. Haven't introduced piecewise functions, haven't used that, let's see what they do with it. And by them working independently and then working in small groups and checking each other's answers and and talking about it, then maybe I'll cold call some students, get their responses and by the back and forth. It isn't just me just, what did you do? Oh, that's right, or that's wrong, where it's just one word answers or ping pong and back mm-hmm. and forth. It is, okay, I see what you're saying, like Travis, but Michelle, what do you think of Travis's like response? What, mm-hmm. what do you understand and what questions do you have? So then it becomes I'm facilitating a conversation of understanding with them, and then then I can help fill in those gaps and talk about like really formally introduce piecewise functions. So that is like a, a strategy that I use for mm-hmm. students to really, okay, I think I got a way to start this. They're bringing in their own experience and understanding, having a conversation, and then all right, I formalize it for them. But the, 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 to me, the, the central point you're making is, A, of course you're forcing them to be challenged intellectually, but mm-hmm. you're saying to them, your community can help you. And yes. I don't mean the community in some spiritual way. I mean the people mm-hmm. you're with right now. Yeah. And the, but, but ultimately it does become, and I would, I mean, it sounds to me like, 
what from your own experience, if you're a minority member, if you're black or Latino, it's it can be harder when you go out into that big world. And knowing that you have a group that can help you is useful. Yeah, and by having that experience, especially in like in a math classroom, I think that could be something that carries them on. I mean, that's why for me, working with ninth and tenth grade. That's my jam. Mm. I mean, these are students that may have very diverse backgrounds in their in their middle school experience, coming in with various skills, various needs, and and various strengths. So, how do I work with them as their introduction to high school level algebra, um, which is like really the foundations that you need going into algebra two, precalculus, calculus, going into the stems. So, how do I kind of introduce this to them and hold that content knowledge? Like, they have to have some level of mastery. But I want to make sure I'm, ex- I'm exposing and giving them the tools early on that can carry on into, like, the other math classes. Because even if other teachers, like, in my school or if they transfer, go to another school, if they're not using those same, like, strategies to, that are student-centered or a way for them to build community with each other, at least they got that early on in my class. And hopefully by doing that enough and becoming like second nature for them, they can carry that on as a tool. Because I, I know for myself that would have been very helpful. I was hesitant to reach out to other teach, other my teacher, to other students for support. I would look online, um, very primitive online when I was in high school, right. um, look in the textbook because we had that. Mm-hmm. And... So I would kind of like get the memorization of some things and be able to apply it, but understanding the why. There's no dialogue with a with something on the internet mm-hmm. or with a book, so you're not getting pushed to understand why. And you were hesitant to, uh, to reach out why. I I think I, it's because I didn't want to seem knowledge or weakness. I I didn't want to seem weak. Sure. I did not want to seem like I'm in school of mathematics science. Mm-hmm. I I have to have this. I have to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. I have to have this down. And to know that you can reach out and you still are good is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very important, especially with the narrative that is around math. Right. I mean, there's a there's a general culture um, that like with math, like, oh, that's hard. Like, when I tell people I'm a math teacher, and there's probably plenty of math teachers who say this when they get interviewed or about anything, like at dinner parties, that, oh, you're a math teacher. Oh, I was never good at math. Right. And there becomes this this fear. And what I want to do with my students is, one, acknowledge that um, and, and talk about that and how they can become strength. So something I try to foster is is this growth mindset. Because so many students come in with, I was never good at math, this broad concept of math. I'm like, oh, like you may be feeling that way, but we're going to focus on algebra, this one bucket of the big bucket of math. Mm-hmm. Let's see if you can feel confident in that. Mm-hmm. And then maybe that confidence will transfer. So by talking about that and having, having dialogue and naming it, um, that I think, well, I've been able to witness, like, growth mindset develop a growth mindset develop in my students especially if other teachers who are on my teaching team like for that grade are also using some practices or talking about growth mindset then they're hearing it from from all around so it becomes i feel not easier but i think they'll be more prone to accept like yeah i could i could do this Mm -hmm. i can try i can struggle sometimes and but i'll get it most of the time if i could develop consistency then and work towards it, then I know I can do this. But there's something else that you've done in your life which is fascinating and which is not math, right? <laughs> yeah, spoke... my other passion. <laughs> your mm-hmm. other passion, the mm-hmm. spoken word, the slam poetry. 
So talk a little bit about that because that, it, it, you know, people have this notion of a kind of dichotomy between the mm. spoken word and math. And in fact, uh, it's probably less of a dichotomy than people think. But in any case, someone, you've been able to do both. And I think that you've been able to connect to students through the spoken word. What, what is that? And how did you get into that? Yeah, I honestly, I, I got into spoken word and slam poetry while I was in college. Um, when I was in high school, uh, I, I thought I could rap. I thought I could make some lyrics and put some things together. Um, I was terrible. Um, <laughs> but while I was at BU, I um, heard about this group called Speak for Yourself. And they were, like, in their first year, like, incorporated as a student organization. And I remember, like, watching YouTube specials or YouTube videos of um, HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam and just being, like, blown away by, like, wow, that's poetry? Like, I'm used to dry poetry. I'm Mm -hmm. used to page poetry. And I'm used to, like, reading some really good poems by poets like Robert Frost, Dylan Thomas. Um, And to be able to hear, like, people write poetry with the intent of performing it, with Mm -hmm. the intent of saying it, I was like, I want to see if I can do that. Um, So I got a part of I joined Speak for Yourself. And after, in my senior year, I was co-president with my best friend, um, for the student organization and through that that helped me develop like the foundations of my craft of what it means to be a spoken word artist as opposed to a slam artist and when you can go back and forth and what is that difference and what is that difference yeah so for me and this is my personal difference if i am a slam artist that uh, means i am performing not only in poetry slams which is more of a competition based um brand of spoken word poetry where there's some limitations. There's Mm. usually a a time limit, so like three minutes with a grace period. Um, And it tends to be like a specific, like quick fire style with spoke, with slam poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you're trying to say a whole lot and you got this time limit um, and you just want to get it out. And as opposed to like a, and there's also no props. Um, So you're not supposed to use any props. Everything has to be original. And, a spoken word artist, I feel it. I mean, if you're not participating in the competition end of things, um, then you know you're you're writing your your poetry, and it probably isn't de- delivered in a rapid fate like pace, spitfire style. Um, it may be a little slower. You may be using more like poetic devices um, in your poetry, and I'm not saying like one's better than the other. Um, the the short way is like, oh, if you compete, you have a time limit, you probably tend to spit it a little faster so you can make sure you make that time. And if you're a spoken word artist, you, know, you don't really have a time limit. Mm. I mean, I've gone to open mics where a spoken word artist will go on for probably too long. Mm-hmm. And some will go on, you're like, I want more. And a slam artist will be working on a poem that they want to use in competition. Um, and, you know, in, in competition, the, the, the points that awarded in competition is not the point. It's the poetry. Uh-huh. And by using the the slam poetry world uses this vehicle as a way to not only you know, increase its popularity and get people out there exposed to spoken word, but also by getting more people to want to be poets. I mean, it's amazing to see what some of these poets are doing out there with their slam poetry and just like blowing blowing people away. So let's bring that issue to education because there's the world of slam poetry and uh, and spoken word and so on. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to see what you've been doing with it as a school teacher. Yeah. So for me, I think one of the most important things to do as an educator um, 
is to really be authentic. It's to, if you could be yourself in the classroom where you don't have to you know, put on airs or be someone else to develop that comfort in front of students that, yeah, I could be myself. Um, I think that takes some time. I didn't have that in my first couple of years of teaching. I, you know, I felt I was young. I wanted to like project myself as being older mm -hmm. and not be intimidated by parents mm -hmm. um, who are older than me. <laughs> and, and it took me a while to get to the point of, wait a minute, as a, as a teacher, as a professional, I, I do have some respect. I should be garnering some respect. Um, so, so when I started feeling more comfortable about who I am, I've been I've shared some of my poetry with my students. And part of me bringing in that passion, because um, I think it's very important to have an outside passion or something else that you do. And you know, you could probably bring it into the classroom um, with your students directly. And that's a little bit more of a challenge as a math teacher, of as opposed to a humanities teacher. Right. Um, but something I've been able to do is. You know, when I was working at Codman Academy, I was co-captain, co-coach of the SLAM team. So I was working with students mm -hmm. and, like, competing in, um, in Louder Than a Bomb Boston, or LTAP for short. Um, I also, before that, when I was working at City on the Hill, when I got out of my undergrad, I, I was, like, working with some students who wanted to work with poetry and, and uh, lyrics and who wanted to be rappers. And we put up a performance. So for me, it's a way that I also get to connect with some students and through something that they may be interested in or that they're passionate about. And I get to know them differently. And do you think it, it in some ways um, softens or humanizes math for them to know that this math teacher is also a poet and a talker? Mm, I haven't really thought about it mm -hmm. that way. I, <laughs> I mean, being honest, I, I kind of get a little more... I get a little scared about trying to make the connection between poetry and math. That's fine. Um, and, I, and, I, and I want to make that connection. Mm -hmm. It's been, one, incredibly hard for me to write a poem to do that, to, <laughs> that makes this, like, fusion between both sides of my brain. But I, I do think in presenting myself that way, and, I mean, also, by, and I do this within the school culture, like, they may hear from other students or look me up online, and they'll see, like, oh, like, this person's authentic, this person's real, especially when I'm they thinking. listen to my poetry, that... By me being myself and authentic, students may be more willing to to listen to me, to right. hear me out. Because I, there, people have a tendency, those who are afraid of math, to kind of separate it into a, into a, this distinct category mm -hmm. of, of almost bloodlessness over there, those numbers that I can't understand and I have to just get through it. On the other hand, a fully integrated person like you who is a math teacher but has all these other passions and interests, in a way becomes a model for kids to understand that math is part of human experience. Yeah, and by talking about that, to, I mean, the number one question, which I love, is, you know, when am I going to use this in real life? How do I do this? Um, and part of my answer is, you know, math is a mindset. It is, you're, you're developing these mental tools to be able to, like, critically analyze and 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 calculate things mm -hmm. and to make sense of different of these different problems that you interact like are you going to like oh like you have these bag of bananas and these bag of apples and then this other person has this bag of bananas and bag of apples and do systems of equations using elimination with that like that's that's kind of that's very <laughs> that's silly it's a stretch stretching it. just like in physics like a frictionless rug because you don't <laughs> want to deal with that coefficient like that's a stretch but and thinking about, okay, when can we use these thought process, processes in real life? And when they are applied, that's when I like to bring them in. 
and showing it how it's used in real life and that algebra really is building this foundation. So I have a little bit of a restriction when I'm teaching some concepts um, in my classroom because it really is the foundational foothold that leads to other things. Um, but I like to bring that back to the students. Like there were some things that you was learning when you was in elementary school and middle school that like you couldn't probably bring a real life connection to, but I'm gonna bring it up now so you can see how that understanding helps set you up for what we're doing right now. And this is not just a, a funny little politically correct thing to say. Your personal experience of finding yourself alone at BU and unable to function is a, a great, to me, example of why it matters so much that mm -hmm. you have a sense of community as a student. Yeah, and by them not only having this experience in the classroom but feeling like like I see another example of success right. because I, I do make great connections with my students. Mm -hmm. that, I can see that. That happens. I also want to be known by what I do in a classroom. Mm -hmm. I want to be looked at as a professional who knows his content and knows how to teach it. So I'm trying to put myself in positions intentionally where I'm part of professional networks or working with other teachers and having opportunities to not only talk about my craft, um, but to get better at it and learn from other people. There's a phrase that a friend of mine just said to me recently that really got me thinking about this. There are times where I am teaching math and there are times where I am teaching students. Mm. And teaching the math, that's me when I'm really like, it's the concept, it's the content that is kind of driving me. And I want students to be able to consistently perform and understand that and do the correct calculations. Um, and then it's time where I'm teaching students. And that for me is when I'm like working one-on-one -on -one with some students and or a group of students, or sometimes even the whole class, and I'm trying to trying to help them grapple with some of the struggles that they're having. Because there has to be intentional decisions between that. And you have to figure that out. What is that balance? Right. And figuring out how their emotional and other character development feeds into their academic growth. Yeah. And you, if you, you have to, I feel, especially in, in our modern um, education system, we, we need to be thinking about the character of students. Um, because for myself... I know I developed a lot of some of those character characteristics um, through my through some other teachers. It wasn't necessarily in the math classroom. And while we while I want to while some of those skills are transferable, some of them are a little bit harder to see depending on your context. So when I was in that calculus class in that in that chemistry class, I wasn't thinking about so much the success I had in other classes. I was thinking about my stems. And just like, I'm struggling right now. I can't do this. So if I would have had that experience in my STEM courses, mm -hmm. I feel like those overarching character development skills and soft and hard skills, I would have been able to transfer more efficiently um, to then overcome some of the challenges I had. That makes sense. So, Francis, I want to thank you very much uh, for coming to the Ed Talks podcast. Uh, I think your uh, students this year at Charlestown High School are lucky folks. Um, and it's, it's just incredibly interesting to talk to someone who has been through what you've been through and who understands the, uh, the, the varied roles in parts of education and bring them together the way you do. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And you're welcome. And I, and I, I, 
I love having some opportunities like this because it pushes me to not only say some things out loud, um, but to keep reflecting myself. Yes. And and I need that as a as a person. I always want to be better at self-reflection. So I appreciate this opportunity. It was a lot of fun. That's great. Yeah. I can tell you that as a writer, we, all, we often say, I don't know what I have to say until I've written it down. So it's a little <laughs> bit like being forced to think aloud, right? Mm-hmm. To watch the Ed Talk discussed in this podcast and learn about future Ed Talks, go to www.bostonedtalks.org. You can also find the Boston Ed Talks on the Boston Foundation's YouTube channel, on Twitter at Boston Ed Talks, and on Facebook.